as the kids are making their way to their classrooms. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Acts chapter 4. This seems like icing on the cake, right? What a blessing it's been this morning to gather with God's people and sing the Word, see the Word and the elements, pray the Word. But now we get to dive into God's Word. What a gift. What a blessing this is to be able to do this together. Acts chapter 4. Last week was chapter 3. Peter and John go into the temple. There's a man that is lame from birth, lying there. God gives them an opportunity to uh, heal him. And Peter stands in the portico of Solomon, literally a, a porch, a colonnade on the east side of the temple, and preaches Christ crucified, uses that opportunity to, to preach about Jesus Christ. He tells the people that they killed the author of life, that they crucified the Messiah, and then he exhorts them to repent and turn back, therefore, so that your sins may be blotted out, and so that times of refreshing might come from the Lord. Now, in chapter 4, we see what the response is to that sermon from chapter 3. And as with most sermons, including perhaps especially mine, the response is a mixed response. Some people believe, and they're added to that number. And others reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. They reject the good news of the gospel. And they begin to persecute those who proclaim that Jesus is God and that God had raised him from the dead. And that begins the theme that will continue throughout the entire book, this opposition to the gospel. And so let's read Acts chapter 4. We're going to look just this morning at the first 22 verses and focus our attention on the response to Peter's sermon of the gospel. This is God's word, Acts chapter 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in, the midst, in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men 
by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may not spread any further among the people, let us warn them not to speak any more in his name. So they called to them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for giving us your inspired word to reveal yourself to us, to reveal your son to us, to reveal your spirit and the plan of the gospel to us, to reveal the nature of man, our depraved and sinful flesh, and how desperately we need that gospel that you planned before the foundation of the world and fulfilled in the person of your Son. We pray, Father, now that you would open your word to us, that you would attend to the reading of your word with your spirit, not just so that we would be smarter and know more about what it means, but we ask that, Father, so that you would use your word to equip us, to transform us, to make us more like Christ. And Father, we pray for those among us who've not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe they are the young members of our family. Maybe they are members of our community who are among us. And they're considering Jesus, maybe among many options. We pray, Father, that you would give them faith this morning. That in the preaching of the gospel, you would give them new life and bring them to faith in Christ as their only hope. Recreate them as worshipers and magnifiers of you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage this morning, we see four gospel effects that I want us to draw out of the passage and consider this morning and consider their implication on our life. First is the gospel increase that we see, but also the gospel opposition that is so readily apparent. Thirdly is the gospel boldness that we see in Peter and John. And then finally, the exclusivity of the gospel. The first two, gospel increase and gospel opposition, are the responses to the gospel that we see among the people that were present for this preaching of the gospel. As we see, some believe and the gospel increases. 
The kingdom advances. The church grows. But some reject. And both the gospel and its adherents are opposed and persecuted. We see that very plainly in this passage. Gospel boldness has to do with its proclamation. And lastly, gospel exclusivity has to do with its content. So let's, let's consider first the gospel increase that we see in this passage of Scripture. Luke first covers the opposition of the gospel in the narrative, but I want us to cover that next because that really has, has more to do and is, is in greater alignment with the main thrust of this text. But I want us to consider first gospel increase. Verse 4 says, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And so we continue to see the church in the book of Acts experiencing explosive and phenomenal growth. There's no other way to describe it. What starts out in chapter 1 as a group of about 120 soon mushrooms at Pentecost to a group of over 3,000. And then in cha- at the end of chapter 2, we see that it didn't stop with just the 3,000 at Pentecost, but as a result of them devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the prayers and the fellowship and being witnesses for Jesus on the streets of Jerusalem, as Jesus said, people were being added to their number day by day. And then now we see here at as a response of this sermon in chapter 3, that many more believe. And now the number of men is about, uh, about 5,000. Now we don't know from the context whether or not this is 5,000 men in total, including the 3,000 souls from Pentecost, or whether this is 5,000 additional men not including those 3,000. Either way, in order for us to get a grasp of uh, the, the number of people who are responding to the gospel here, Bible scholars tell us that we need to add to this number at least 5,000 women and at least another 5,000 children, neither of whom would be included in that count of 5,000 men. The point is that many thousands of people in Jerusalem are responding to the gospel in faith. They're coming to faith in Jesus. They're being baptized and they're being added to their number. The early church experiences phenomenal and explosive and incredible growth. In just a few weeks, they've gone from 120 to what is conservatively over 15,000 people. If this church were around today, it would be on the front page of every paper, every magazine, and it would be called the fastest growing church in the world. It's incredible growth. But what does that mean for us? Does that mean that the church of today that doesn't experience that kind of growth is somehow unfaithful? Of course not. I mentioned last week that as we go through our study of the book of Acts, we're going to often need to discern that which is descriptive in the book of Acts and that which is prescriptive in the book of Acts. 
When is Luke merely describing something that was happening to the early church in the first century? And when is Luke prescribing something that should be normative for the church in the 21st century? And I think it's clear from this context that this is one of those instances and times when Luke is describing an uncommon work of the Holy Spirit that he was doing in that time and in that place of redemptive history where God was drawing men and women to himself and growing his church in an unusually explosive way. Should we want this for our time and place? Absolutely. Should we pray for God to do this among us in our time and in our place and in our context? Without a doubt. Will it happen in our context and in our place and in our time? I don't know. That's up to God, not us, just as it was in the first century. Now, some will look at this explosive growth of the first century church, and while they're admittedly going to, they're going to have to admit that it's impossible to conclude that this kind of explosive growth is normative for the church of any age, still they would argue that this must mean that it is normative for the church to grow, maybe not as fast as this church, but relatively fast. And the problem with that interpretation is that nowhere in the Scriptures are we told to measure our success as a church by our fruitfulness, as if that were up to us, but rather to measure our success by our faithfulness. You see, when we measure our success by our fruitfulness, then we will be tempted to do whatever is necessary in order to remain fruitful. As This will lead us to compromise the message. It will lead us to elevate experience over fidelity to God's Word. This will lead to diluting the gospel and diluting the message with an overemphasis on God's love and grace and an underemphasis on God's justice and holiness. Soon we discover that we're not talking about sin very much and we're not talking about eternal judgment at all. We begin watering down the message and we begin offering all kinds of programs for any consumers that might walk in through those doors. Why? Because we want them to walk in the doors. Because when they walk in the doors, then they are part of us. And then we say that we are fruitful. And then we say that we are successful. And then we say that we look just a little bit more like this early church. And then maybe we begin to have spontaneous baptisms. And maybe just a smidge of emotional manipulation in order to engender people to walk the aisle. And pretty soon... We're being celebrated as the fastest growing church in our association. But is that really the kind of fruit that we want? Numbers for the sake of numbers. Coerced decisions and, and pressured baptisms. Is a big church with a big budget and lots of cars in the park, parking lot and lots of programs throughout the week, are those things really a good indication of spiritual fruit in the church no of course not 
the kind of fruitfulness that we want, that we desire, that we pray for, are our lives changed by the gospel. New life in Christ. Born again Christians and lives transformed and conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what we long for. And not only are those other things not necessarily an indication of true spiritual fruitfulness, but true spiritual fruitfulness in the form of genuine born-again believers in Christ, lives changed, lives transformed to the image of Christ, is simply not something that, something that we can manipulate or that we can cause in any way. That is up to our God, not us. New spiritual life is a result of the Spirit of God acting on an unbeliever in their dead spiritual state and giving them new life in Christ and bringing them to repentance and faith in the gospel. So we don't want to measure success by our fruitfulness. We, we want to measure success by faithfulness. Our faithfulness to look for and take advantage of gospel opportunities. Being faithful to do that which Jesus said in Acts 1.8 before he ascended to the Father. Be witnesses of mine in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And leaving the fruitfulness up to God. That's what Peter and John did here. They were going to the temple in chapter 3 and a gospel opportunity presented itself. God miraculously used them to heal a lame beggar who had been lame from birth. And that resulted in an astonished crowd that were gathering around Peter and John. Friends, that's a gospel opportunity. And Peter and John took advantage of that. Peter stands up and he preaches Jesus as the Christ, the holy and righteous one, the author of life whom you killed. And God raised from the dead. He preaches Christ crucified and risen again. And then he calls for a response. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Peter was faithful to take advantage of that gospel opportunity. And God in his sovereignty chose to bring fruitfulness. Great fruitfulness in that situation. Peter did what Peter was responsible to do and left for God that which God was responsible for, which is bringing new life to sinners. I think we pull away from this that we as a church ought to be more encouraged to be faithful to gospel opportunities as God presents them to us, to look for them, to take advantage of them, but to leave fruitfulness to God. That's his territory, not ours. But secondly, gospel increase was not the only response here to Peter's sermon. The bulk of chapter 4 is about gospel opposition. And this opposition comes about almost abruptly here at the beginning, almost like it's an interruption. Luke says in verse 1, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them. So it's, it's almost as if they interrupt the sermon. As Peter and John are teaching the people about Jesus, as people are getting saved, they come upon them and they seize them. Now who are the they here? Who seizes Peter and John? 
Luke writes, the priests and the captain of, of the temple and the Sadducees. Together, this group formed what was known as the Sanhedrin. They are essentially the religious leaders who were in charge there in this day. And they had the right to convene councils and pronounce judgments on the Jews who were living there in Jerusalem at that time. But why do they seize Peter and John? Verse 2 says that they were greatly annoyed. The New American Standard translates that they were greatly disturbed. So what made them so annoyed and so disturbed? Verse 2 says, because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They didn't want Peter and John to teach the people because only they were the authorized teachers of the people. And they didn't want to lose that positional authority that they had over the people. But they were greatly annoyed and disturbed, not just because they were teaching, but because of what they were teaching. Namely, that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now we know that Peter and John taught them much more than that because much of Peter's sermon is recorded for us in chapter 3. But the thing about Peter's sermon that really got under their crawl was that he was teaching that Jesus, the Christ, had risen from the dead. Now why was that such a big deal to them? Well, they knew that if that man Jesus really did rise from the dead, then that meant that everything that he stood for and everything that he taught was true. And they just couldn't bring themselves to come to grips with that. They couldn't accept that Jesus was the Christ, that they had killed him, and that God had raised him from the dead. What we have here is the very first instance of a New Testament church being persecuted because of their faithful proclamation of the gospel. And it won't be the last. This will be a theme that will be carried all throughout the book of Acts. And it's a theme that continues to our, very, to our day today. Not only do they seize them, verse 3 says that they arrested them and they put them in custody. That is, they threw them in jail. And then on the next day, they convene a council, essentially a courtroom setting. And they bring Peter and John before them and they question them in verse 7. By what power, by what name did you do this? I think it's interesting to note that Jesus was asked pretty much the exact same question when he taught the people during his earthly ministry, when he healed the lame of his day, as recorded in both Luke and Mark's gospel. By whose authority, Jesus? By whose authority do you do these things? And didn't Jesus promise that that would happen? That those who follow him would be opposed just like he was opposed? Listen to the words of Jesus in John 15. As he told his disciples in that setting, including Peter and John, that this very same thing would happen to them. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Jesus goes on, remember the word that I said to you. 
A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus promised that those who follow him will be opposed. Those who proclaim the good news that he came to preach and execute would be persecuted. And that's exactly what's happening to Peter and John. They're arrested, they're thrown in jail, they're brought before this religious court because they're telling the people about Jesus and they're telling them that Jesus is risen from the dead. Paul would later tell young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, Indeed, all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Certainly there are parts of the world today even where teaching about Jesus will result in persecution, real persecution. Whether it's economic persecution, loss of income, loss of job, loss of housing, loss of status in society, or physical persecution. Incarceration in prison camps, beatings, and yes, even death. It happens in places like North Korea, Eritrea, Somalia, Libya, and Afghanistan. And church, we ought to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ who are enduring that kind of persecution. The kind of persecution that Christians experience in America today is so minimal. It's not even in the same category. Perhaps we shouldn't even call it persecution but there is opposition to the gospel in our country. And that opposition is growing with each passing year. And as it does, we should be reminded that Jesus promised that. But not only did he promise it, he told us how to respond to it. In the last of the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this. Blessed are you, happy are you, good for you, when what? When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And he says this, rejoice and be glad. Did he really say that? Rejoice and be glad that you're being persecuted. It's almost as if Jesus knows something that we don't. It's almost as if Jesus can see beyond the here and now and can see into eternity. And that's something that when we're suffering for Jesus in this world, when brothers and sisters around the world are being persecuted in whatever way they're experiencing it, 
It's very hard for them to see beyond the here and now. But Jesus says, I see. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The, pro- the prophets, presumably he's saying, that are experiencing glory at this moment. So when we faithfully proclaim the gospel, God may bring gospel increase. Some may believe and trust in Christ and the kingdom may be advanced and the church may grow, but there may also be gospel opposition. And if there is, the scriptures say expect it. Don't be surprised by it. And rejoice and be glad as you consider the eternal reward that awaits those who endure it faithfully. Later on in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 4, after the religious leaders realize that they can't bring any charges against these guys, there's there's nothing that they've done, They, they, they can't charge them with a crime, and so they decide to let them go. But before they do, they order them not to teach or say anything in the name of Jesus Christ to anyone ever again. And so Peter and John log on to Twitter and they make a furious tweet about this blatant infringement of their religious liberty. And they march on Jerusalem and they pick it outside the temple calling for police. Of course they don't. They calmly, graciously, yet firmly reply to them. Only by the Spirit of God can a Can a man or woman say this in the face of persecution? Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, they were submitting to the governing authorities. As Paul later tells us in Romans 13, is the responsibility of every Christian to submit to the governing authorities. But their submission to the governing authorities was only to a point. Paul says in Romans chapter 13 that we ought to submit to the governing authorities. Why? Because there is no authority except that which is instituted by God. And so when we resist that authority that is instituted by God, we find ourselves resisting God. But when that governing authority steps outside the boundary of their God-ordained authority and they demand you to do something that is in contradiction to God's authority as revealed in his word, then we as Christ followers are required to civilly disobey the governing authorities. And that's what Peter and John are doing here, civil disobedience. They're not being jerks. They're not being contentious. They're just calmly, kindly, and graciously telling them, we answer to a higher authority than you. We answer to God. And God told us to be witnesses of Jesus beginning in Jerusalem. And so guys, we must disobey your order to not speak in the name of Jesus. Here we see an example of the third gospel effect, that of gospel boldness. 
Imagine being arrested for telling a story. Whatever the story is. You're arrested for telling a story. You're thrown in jail. You're brought before the authorities. And the judge looks you in the eye and he says, I've decided to release you on one condition. That you never tell that story again. What would you do? Would you agree to that condition or not? It probably depends on what that story is, right? Probably depends on whether or not that story is true. Probably depends on whether or not that story is really that important, right? If the story was a lie and you knew it to be a lie, then you probably would be okay with that condition. After all, it's not a big deal if you never tell a lie again. Or if that story were true, but it just wasn't really that important. It's not life or death. It's relatively unimportant and relatively inconsequential. You might be tempted to agree to that condition. To not tell that story again, even if it was true. Because after all, what difference does it make whether or not you tell it or not tell it? Because it's not that important. But if the story was true. And you were absolutely convinced that it was true. And if you knew the story was the most important and the most consequential story that the world has ever known, there's no way that you would agree to this condition. The condition which Peter and John refused to agree to, to never speak of the gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone again. The answer to that question is no. No. I must tell this story because it is true and because it is absolutely important and because a higher authority than you told me to keep telling it until I died. Peter and John's boldness in proclaiming the gospel are tied to the veracity of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and the importance of the gospel. Friend, there is no truer news than the gospel. And there is no more important news, more consequential news, than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The news that a holy God sent His Son to be the perfect sacrifice for sinners who are hopelessly lost without a way to to God. So that those who place their faith in that Christ might be rescued and given His righteousness and reconciled to Him. There is no greater news. There is no truer news. There is no more consequential news. Hence the boldness of Peter in proclaiming it. We've seen the boldness of Peter on display already in the books of Acts. In in the weeks leading up to Jesus' ascension... After his ascension, as they met in the upper room, in in, in the weeks leading up to Pentecost, at Pentecost, and and at the sermon that that he preached in the temple after the man was healed. And now we see the boldness of Peter again before the Sanhedrin. Back in verse 8, when he's asked by what power or what name do you do this, Peter replies in verse 8 and following, Then Peter 
filled with the Holy Spirit. So his, his gospel boldness it, it correlates to the, the, the veracity and the importance of the gospel itself. It, it also correlates directly to him being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now some might say, well, wait a second, wasn't he filled with the Holy Spirit back at Pentecost? Yes, he was. He was both indwelt and filled with the Holy Spirit in that setting. As we discussed when we covered chapter 2, we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit of God at the moment of conversion. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope, the Holy Spirit comes to reside in us and is given to us to comfort us and encourage us and guide us and convict us of sin. But remember the chocolate syrup in the milk. Remember that? Remember that illustration? I know Knox Wrecker remembers that. Just because the glass of milk has the chocolate syrup in it doesn't mean that that glass of milk is filled with the chocolate syrup to the point where the milk looks and tastes chocolatey. And so we devote ourselves to the discipline of reading and studying the Word of God. And we devote ourselves to communing with God through prayer. And we devote ourselves to koinonia fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. And we devote ourselves to being witnesses for Jesus wherever he sends us. All of these things we know the early followers of Christ were devoting themselves to as we saw at the end of chapter 2. We do those things. And while, while doing those things doesn't automatically equate to us looking more like Christ, it does raise our spiritual sail, to, to, to mix a metaphor. It, it raises our spiritual uh, uh, sail, so to speak, so that the prevailing wind of the Holy Spirit will blow and, and move us to look more and more like Christ. And when the need arises to be a bold witness for Jesus, whatever that need looks like, the Holy Spirit will supernaturally fill us to represent Him well. To give us the very words to say so that we might be a bold witness for Jesus like Peter. Again, Peter in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter pulls no punches here. He calls it like it is. He tells them, you guys are guilty of killing the Christ. You're guilty of murdering the Messiah. It was one thing for Peter to say this to the average Joes like us who were gathered around him in the temple after he healed the lame man. It's quite another thing for him to say this to these guys in this setting. Many of these who are listed here were also present at the trial of Jesus. Namely, specifically, Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas. They are named, singled out by name, in the account of Jesus' trial. And we know how that went. And now these very same men... This very same Sanhedrin council that wrongfully convicted Jesus and executed him 
He's questioning Peter and John, and, and Peter holds nothing back. He's not mean. He's not being ugly. He's not a jerk. He's not trying to defend himself. He's just giving them truth. Boldly, courageously, unashamedly, he's giving them the truth that they must have. You killed the Christ, and God raised him from the dead. It seems each week as we go through the book of Acts, we are being confronted more and more with opportunities to compare this Peter with the Peter that just weeks prior cowered before a little girl when she discovered that he was one of those who would walk, walk with Jesus. We saw it before at Pentecost. We saw it at Pentecost. We saw it in his sermon last week after healing the lame beggar. And now we see it again as Peter stands up boldly and speaks boldly before the Sanhedrin. It's almost as if Peter wants us to take specific notice of their boldness. Luke makes mention of their boldness explicitly in verse 13. He writes, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And so our boldness in the gospel opportunities that God gives us are dependent on the, the, the truth and importance of the gospel, being filled with the Spirit, but also they are connected to our being with Jesus, spending time with Jesus. There was something about Peter and John that made the religious leaders aware of the fact that it looks like these guys have been with Jesus of Nazareth. They remembered who he was and what he was like, and they, and they see something about him in them. They recognize them as having been with Jesus. Friend, if we're going to be faithful to the gospel opportunities that God gives us, in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, and community, then we need to be people who spend time with Jesus. And I don't mean the idea of Jesus, but the real person, Jesus, the Lord, the Christ, the Savior, our Redeemer. What does that mean? Well, it means not just reading our Bible so that we learn more about the Scriptures and we're smarter about that stuff. But it means that we read the scriptures in order to commune with Christ, to spend time with the Lord. It means that we don't just upload a list of prayer requests to our Lord as if he were some kind of spiritual vending machine. We put in the coin and out come the snacks. But in prayer, we commune with him as if he were really and truly there. It means not just checking a box when we fellowship with one another as if talking about sports and the weather had any spiritual benefit to us whatsoever. But rather encouraging one another and confessing sins to one another and preaching the gospel truths to one another. Recognizing that our common union with Christ has also made us united to one another in Jesus and that person that we're fellowshipping with is someone in whom is the very Spirit of God. 
Friend, if we aren't spending time with Jesus in these ways, how can we hope in those gospel opportunities to be faithful witnesses for Jesus? We must spend time with Jesus as a real person. And so we've seen responses to the gospel that that God may sovereignly choose to bring increase when we proclaim the gospel, that God may bring opposition to the gospel when we proclaim the gospel. We've seen gospel boldness in Peter and John's witness. And then lastly this morning, we see here gospel exclusivity. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. Peter says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you guys, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 11 there also displays the boldness of Peter. He says, Jesus is the stone that you guys rejected. And then he quotes from Psalm 118, verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It's interesting to remember that Earlier in his ministry, Jesus also quoted this very same verse upon the occasion of his parable of the vineyard. Remember that parable? There's a a master who owns a vineyard, and he lets it out to many tenants while he goes away on a long journey. When the time for harvest comes, the master sends back a servant to collect Uh, his portion of the fruit of the harvest. And the tenants seize him and beat him and send him away without anything, empty-handed. The master does this twice more. Each time, the tenants beat the servant and send him away empty-handed. Then the master sends his son. And the tenants think, This is the heir. Let's not only beat him, but kill him, and then we will receive the inheritance. And they do so. And when Jesus tells the parable, he gets to the end and he asks, what then will the master do to the tenants? And he answers his own question. He will kill them, and he will take away the land from them, the vineyard from them, and give it to others. And then Jesus quotes from this very same Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And now Peter does the same. Peter is saying here, Jesus was the son and you killed him. And now God is going to take the vineyard, the promise of the covenant, the promise of blessing from you and give it to others. This not only demonstrates the boldness of Peter in this setting, but also the unashamed exclusivity of the gospel. Jesus is the stone that was rejected, the stone that has become the cornerstone. There is only one cornerstone, that very first stone that is laid in the foundation in ancient Near Eastern architecture. 
that one cornerstone is the stone from which all of the other stones are laid then in relation to that cornerstone. And Peter says, and Jesus himself says, that he is the cornerstone. And then verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It is this exclusivity of the gospel that is the reason why the world hates Christianity. The world doesn't hate Christianity because we say that Jesus is God, but because we say that Jesus is the only God. The world is not opposed to the gospel because we say that the gospel is a way for sinners to be reconciled to God, but because we say that the gospel is the only way for sinners to be reconciled to God. Jesus himself said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. Friend, this is the gospel. We are the sinners who desperately need saving, and there is a name by which we can be saved. And that name, plainly, is not Allah. That name is not Buddha or any other name for any other God that we might invent. The only name by which sinful man can be saved and rescued and reconciled to God is the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is the gospel. Apart from this gospel, we are still dead in our sins. Apart from this gospel, we have no hope of being faithful witnesses for Jesus, which is the baton that Jesus handed us in chapter 1. We have no hope of fulfilling that mission and accomplishing the Great Commission without the, the, the gospel infusing us with sustaining grace to wake up each day and fight against sin and live faithfully for Jesus on mission. We need the gospel not just so that we can be saved from the penalty of sin, but we need the gospel each and every day so that we can fulfill the mission that he gave us to be witnesses of Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Let us hold to this gospel in our generation and for the sake of coming generations with an iron grip that we will never let it go. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and this is the first time you've heard the gospel, or this is the first time the Lord has seen fit to make it all come together for you, and by His grace you recognize for the very first time that you stand on the outside looking in, that because of your sin, you recognize, maybe now for the first time, that, that you deserve judgment. You don't deserve grace. You don't deserve eternal life. You don't deserve to be reconciled to a holy God. You deserve for that holy God to put you away. And it's breaking your heart. Because God has given you a love for Him and you want to be reconciled to Him. Friend, you're in a good place. Because the gospel says that he sent his son Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice 
to live perfectly and earn the righteousness that you and I never could, to die on the cross in our place, taking on himself the punishment that we deserve to pay so that sinners like us might repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone to rescue us so that we receive his righteousness justifying us before him and that our sin is paid for on that cross so that we can stand before a holy God justified with this alien righteousness that is not our own but has been imputed to us by faith. Friend, if that describes you, then I beg of you this morning, repent of your sins and trust in Christ alone. He's your only hope, but he is a sufficient hope. Trust in Christ. Believe on Christ. Make him your Lord and Savior. And friend, brother, sister, follower of Christ, remember the mission that he has given to the disciples, he's given to us. Be witnesses for Jesus. Take the gospel to your Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's our responsibility. To look for and take advantage of those opportunities. God in his sovereign wisdom may sometimes bring increase. He may sometimes bring opposition. But let us lean on him for the boldness that we need. Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you that you have made a way for sinful men and women like us to be rescued. Pray, Father, that we would trust in that gospel message and that gospel hope, not just for rescue from what we deserve, but for the faith to continue to live for you on mission each day until you take us home. We want to be obedient we want to be faithful to you. We want to have the kind of boldness that Peter and John display for us. But then we look at ourselves and we see we're not like that. We're filled with sin. We're filled with idolatry. We're filled with way too much of the world. And our only hope to have that boldness and to be those faithful witnesses is to lean on the gospel today and tomorrow and each and every day that the Lord tarries and keeps us here. And so, Father, give us a greater grip and grasp of the gospel and cause us to persevere, to never let it go. We thank you for that good news. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.